these next two weeks, we're continuing our series on prioritizing the presence of God. We've been looking at Jesus and how he lived his life, understanding that if we're serious about being his disciples, then the best thing we can do is to study how he lived, what his priorities were, how he spent his time, how he treated other people, and then copy him. Um, and as we're coming to the end of the series, there might just be some of you who have tried hard to do the things that we've learned over the series, but you're still feeling a little bit stuck, feeling that there's something in the way of you experiencing the full presence of God in your life. Maybe you struggle to think of God as a loving father. Maybe you can't accept that God really loves you. Or maybe deep down you feel you don't deserve God's love or Jesus' sacrifice. You might be stuck in unhelpful patterns of behaviour or thinking and believe that you've got to master them before you can be acceptable to God. You can't move past those things to receive his grace and his love. These things can get in the way of us fully experiencing the presence of God in our lives. Well, today we're going to be looking at Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well from John chapter 4. And we're drawing from that to help us think about our topic today, which is dealing with our past. Now, you might be wondering, as I did <laughs> before I started looking at it, what's this got to do with living in the presence of God? But I hope that it will become clear to you as we explore the story together today and then think about how it applies to our lives next week. So as I've said, the account can be found in John chapter 4, um, but I'm going to tell it to you like a story um, and, and I'm going to make comments on it as we go through. And what I want us to pay real attention to is um, how Jesus treats the woman, how he responds to her and where he takes their discussion. So the context is that Jesus has been living and teaching in Judea and the Pharisees there had started getting up a little bit of a competition um, comparing Jesus to John the Baptist and um, who was baptising more people. And Jesus didn't want his, his ministry to get defined or sidetracked by this. So he decided to leave Judea and go back to Galilee to avoid getting drawn into it. So the most straightforward route was to go through Samaria. So if you think on a map, which I haven't got for you on the slides, um, it, they're in a straight line. So we've got Judea down here, Samaria and Galilee. So the most direct route from Judea to Galilee was just to go straight. But because there's been for years huge conflict and disagreement between Jews and Samaritans, most Jews would avoid the direct route and they'd go right round even though it would take twice as long to make that journey. So, however, Jesus here, he's always countercultural, isn't he? He decided that he was going to go direct. And so he set off with his disciples to travel through Samaria. Now, it was a really long trek. Even going the quickest way, it would take about three days. And on one of his journeying days, when it got to the hottest time of day, it was about noon and they were a little way outside a, a, t a little town called Sychar and they reached a fork in the road where there was a watering place called Jacob's Well. 
Now, Jesus would have been teaching as he was walking. Um, and so he was tired from the journey. So he sat down by the well and rested while his disciples went into Sychar to buy food. And while he was resting, a Samaritan woman came, approached the well with her bucket to draw some water. Now, we're not told the woman's name, but we do get a clue about her even this early in the story. Why was she walking over half a mile outside of her town when there would have been water in the town? And why was she getting water at the hottest time of day when it was the custom to collect water in the evening when it was cooler? Well, we're perhaps getting a hint here about her status in the town. We're going to hear in a minute, I'm giving you a sneak preview, that she's had multiple marriages and her current situation is that she's living with a man who she's not married to. And even today, we often raise a little eyebrow at someone who has multiple partners, don't we? You think of Joan Collins or Elizabeth Taylor. Um, and in biblical times, the disgrace was much, much bigger she would have been seen as immoral and ostracized by her community. They basically would have had nothing to do with her. She would have been spurned and insulted. She was an outcast. She would certainly be feeling that shame and guilt that we heard about so brilliantly in Family Fun. So she went to collect water at a time of day when there was no one else around and at a place where she wouldn't bump into anybody so that they would spurn her and be horrible to her. So here she is at the well, outside the town at the hottest time of day. She's about to draw water close to where Jesus was resting. And Jesus does an extraordinary thing. He says, will you give me a drink? Now, there are several reasons why, culturally, why Jesus should not have done this. Firstly, he was a Jew. And Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Remember, they'd rather go out of their way and double their journey than bump into one. Secondly, he's a man and she's a woman. And Jewish men didn't even speak to Jewish women in those days in public. So to speak to a Samaritan woman would have been a real no-no. Thirdly, he was a holy teacher and she's living immorally. And we hear in a bit that Jesus knows her marital status. He knows how she's living. And yet he still starts the conversation. He was going against all the cultural norms in speaking to her and knows that if he just even touches something belonging to her, so like the drinking vessel, it will make him ceremonially unclean. And yet he's asking for a drink. He makes the first move. He invites her into a dialogue with him. And so they start to talk. And what we have in John here, it's just a brief summary, really, of what would have been a long and intimate conversation. The account is, it's a bit like the minutes of a meeting, if you like. It's got the main highlights or the bullet points, but not the real nitty gritty of what exactly what was said. But we know it was a long and intimate conversation because it culminates in the woman's wonderful declaration, he told me everything I ever did. So we can be sure that they spoke together about her whole life. 
and how it had led to this moment of meeting with Jesus. We're also told that the disciples, when they came back, they didn't question Jesus. They didn't butt in. They didn't interrupt this life-changing conversation. But it starts with Jesus asking her for a drink. Now, the woman is shocked. She says, how can you ask me for a drink? You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. And Jesus said, if you knew about God's gifts and who you're talking to, you'd have asked him for living water. Now the woman takes Jesus literally here. It's like she hears it, but she doesn't really understand. She's got a block and doesn't realize that Jesus is speaking symbolically. And in common language of their day, living water was the term used for rivers or streams. Um, and this contrasted with the water from this well, which was a bit more like a cistern deep down where the water would have sort of trickled up out of the subsoil. And in those times, river water was always the better, much better option. So she's thinking to herself, God, how dare this bloke? Even our forefather Jacob wasn't able to find living water here. He's got, he had to dig this well to provide water for his family and his flock. And yet, here he is claiming to be able to find living water. So she gets a little bit indignant and she says to him, well, do you think you're better than Jacob? She's a bit challenging, a bit hostile. But whereas you or I might respond defensively and get our hackles up a little bit, Jesus is gentle and he's patient with her. And he puts his message in another way. He says, well, everyone who drinks water from this well will be thirsty again. But anyone who drinks of the water that I can offer will never be thirsty again. Now, at this point, I think uh, the woman is sensing that the conversation is taking an unusual turn. She's still not quite ready to understand the symbolism of what Jesus is saying. But perhaps she senses that it's becoming a bit more personal because she does what many of us do when we're feeling a little bit uncomfortable. She tries to deflect it by cracking a joke. So she says, well, if your water's so good, give it to me then. You'll save me a trip and a job. I won't have to keep trekking all the way to this well every day. Jesus stays very gentle and you can, you can see he's drawing her in. He's getting closer to her. And you can almost hear him chuckle and say, all right then, go and get your husband and come back with him. He lets the conversation go at a pace that doesn't scare her, but he does guide it to lead up to her revealing the truth about herself. She now feels safe enough with Jesus to share with him the intimate details of her life. I don't have a husband, she says. And Jesus answers, I know you don't. You've had five husbands and you're not married to the man you live with now. So here it is. Her past has been exposed. Jesus has highlighted the mess that the woman has made of her life and they talk about it. But there's no indication here that she's feeling condemned. She might be feeling vulnerable, but she knows instinctively that she can trust Jesus. She doesn't slink away in shame or hide away in guilt. On the contrary, when she goes off declaring, he told me everything I ever did, we can sense the relief in her that she shared her story and been understood. 
Now, we're not told her backstory, but we can be sure that she had one and that Jesus supported her with compassion and kindness to think about it. Was she unloved as a child? Were her parents disappointed that she was a girl and she was trying to make up for that lack of love by having multiple relationships? Did she have such a low self-esteem that she found her sense of self-confidence only through having loads of relationships? Had she suffered a lot of loss in her life and was trying to fill the gap with partner after partner? Had she experienced trauma in her early life and found herself in a string of abusive relationships, repeating patterns? Had she been divorced and discarded repeatedly? It could be any of these things or something else entirely. We're not told. And I, I, th I think that's fantastic that we're not told. It's just between her and Jesus. But Jesus understands that what's happened to her in the past has contributed to her present way of life. And he's helped her to process what's led up to their meeting. He told me everything I ever did. We can hear the relief here of a soul unburdened and understood. So back to their conversation. The woman responds by starting to talk about worship. Where's the best place to worship? The Samaritans believed that the best place was on a nearby mountain and the Jews believed it was Jerusalem. So they talk about it. Where's the best place for her to do this? Jesus explains that true worship involves the spirit and truth and isn't about a place at all. He finishes by revealing to her that he's the Messiah. Now, the reason that she's brought up worship here is because she realises that she needs to bring her life to God. And she knows that the best way to do this is to offer worship or a sacrifice to him and wants to know where she should do this properly. So she's saying she knows she needs to sort her life out and wants to do it right this time. Now, we don't know. She might need to say sorry to God. She might need to forgive some people. She might need to ask for some healing. She might just need to understand and acknowledge before God how her past has affected her choices in life. And it's interesting to note that Jesus doesn't tell her what to do. He lets her come to that realisation herself. She's not feeling condemned, but convicted. And she feels empowered to make some changes. So in essence, Jesus is supporting her to make changes in her life and gives her the strength to do it. But it's really important to note that she's got to deal with her past first before she can move forward into her future. She's not encouraged to forget it. And she's not encouraged to brush it under the carpet. Jesus gently leads her to unfold her life stories, what her challenges have been, where people have hurt her, where she's made mistakes. Only then can she move on and start to make changes for restoration. But Jesus is showing her an important truth. Her past has shaped her present, but it doesn't have to determine her future. She can deal with the past, shake off those feelings of guilt and shame and move forward. So she leaves her water pot, knowing that she's going to come back. And she rushes into town. Come and see this man. He told me everything I ever did. 
This is a reparatory act for her. It begins to restore her status amongst the townspeople. They take notice of her. They don't reject her call to come and see Jesus. No doubt they can see the difference in her. She's been set free and they can see that. So they listen to her and go to hear Jesus. And as a result, so many people want to hear Jesus that he decides to stay another two days in that area. And by doing this, Jesus is further helping her to restore her reputation in the town, in the community. Many people come to Jesus because of the woman's testimony. In her being set free, free to change, others are also being set free. And they will give her credit for being the person who introduced them to Jesus. So this is a powerful story, isn't it? I encourage you to read it for yourselves this week in John chapter 4. It shows us Jesus' compassion and insight, his willingness to break cultural taboos, his patience, his kindness and understanding. And it shows us a woman who experiences the relief of sharing her history, of her life's choices and patterns being understood, who receives support to make changes and reparation who shares her story and as a result sees many people becoming followers of Jesus. The story shows us that her past has shaped her future, but it doesn't have to, sorry, the, the past has shaped her present, but it doesn't have to determine her future. So that's our message for today. Next week, we're going to take a look at what this story can teach us, how we can gain an understanding about how the past can affect us and how we can deal with it. So tune in next week to part two and uh, I'll hand it back to Dave and Kath.